Well, this morning's sermon is entitled Clichés. So if you would be willing to pray with me this morning and we'll get started and we'll just jump right into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another morning, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us this morning as we gather as a community of faith, Lord, coming to seek your face and um, hear your words. Lord, we ask that you would use me as a vessel, Lord, and that you would speak to your people this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Bring comfort, healing, joy, and conviction. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible, um, we are going to be looking in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11. So, yes, if you have it, once again, Mark chapter 11. And we'll start at verse 12. This is the gospel according to Mark. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered into the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priest, priest and the scribe heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his, and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. When I read this story, I'm like, why would he curse the fig tree if it didn't have fruit? Isn't that kind of like unfair? This is the gospel according to Mark. So there's this story about Jesus in this book. And Jesus is in Bethany, right outside Jerusalem, where he and his disciples are attending the festival of the Passover. So the, in Jerusalem the day before, everyone was showing Jesus love as he rode in on his donkey. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And after all that love, Jesus gets off his whip or his ride, or the donkey, checks out the temple, and heads home. The next day, Jesus heads back into Jerusalem. Now, he didn't have time to stop at 7-Eleven to pick up some spam musubis. 
So he was a little hungry. So Jesus does what any local person would do. We start scoping out the neighbor's yard, looking for some low-hanging mangoes or some lychee, but no more. It's not mango season. It's not lychee season. He does, however, see a fig tree. This tree, the text tells us, has some leaves. And the author really wants us to know that there's leaves on this tree. In fact, he mentions it twice. See, the fig plant is one of those plants that loses its leaves in the fall, and then it grows back in the spring. And you guys might know this about fig trees because you're a lot smarter than me. But the figs, the fig fruit appears before the fig leaves start to grow. So Jesus saw the leaves and he was like, Ooh, get chance, get chance. So he cautiously walks there, hoping that his, the neighbors don't see him. But he finds only leaves. No fruit. Not even knobs. This tree had no potential to grow any figs anytime soon. What's the purpose of a fruit tree that is unable to bear fruit? What's the purpose of its existence? So that's why Jesus curses this tree. Several years ago, I was, um, there was this book that was published called Unchristian. I don't know if any of you read it. And it talks about what a new generation really thinks about Christianity. And it's written by the Barna Group, who does a lot of useful research about Christianity. They try to be as objective as possible. And the research showed that the three most common perceptions that Christian are that Christians are hypocritical, judgmental, and anti-homosexual. From the title of the book alone, it seems like Christianity might not be fulfilling its purpose. Just like the fig tree. Are we as Christians a fig tree that have leaves but bears no fruit. So this story of the fig tree sets up what is about to happen next. This is what the scholars would call a Markin sandwich, meaning that it comes from the book of Mark and then it's like a sandwich because it has a story and then a story in the middle and then it closes with another story that's similar to the first story. So the cursing of the fig tree leads and complements the temple cleansing. And after the temple cleansing, the author refers back to the fig tree that has withered away. So you may have heard the expression, what a difference a day makes. Jesus' second day in Jerusalem was a turning point of his popularity that would lead to finally his death. On this day, Jesus enters the temple and he has a plan. This would be the second time in two days that Jesus would enter the temple and Jesus starts tearing up the place. Tables are flipping, coins are clanking, birds frantically chirping and squawking, feathers levitating amidst all the chaos. This was a protest. 
This was injustice, and Jesus was protesting the exploitation that was taking place within the temple. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this commercial. It was a while ago by Southwest Airlines. Um, it starts off with two scuba divers. Um, one is a tourist, the other is the tour guide. And they're observing some tropical fish under the coral reef. And the scuba instructor is like pointing out all the fishes. Oh, that's a humu humu nuku nuku aqua. And look, a uhu. And the tourist is enjoying the whole experience, but he notices he no longer has bubbles coming out of his scuba tank. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm out of air. And the diving guide turns to him and says, air is an additional $35 fee. Do you want that? And the drowning scuba diver quickly agrees, yeah, yeah, I want that. And he reaches for his wallet, pulls out his dollar bills, which is now floating in the water. <laughs> then the narrator says, hidden fees can make a really good deal, really, really bad. See, the hidden fees of the vendors made the temple really, really bad. Jesus was appalled that the merchants were exploiting the people who came to worship God with their sacrifices. He was probably more upset that the temple priests, who probably got some kickback from these inflated prices, would allow such a thing to happen. Jesus overturning the tables was a protest towards those who are taking advantage of others, especially the poor. See, the business of sacrifice appears to have taken priority over the intention of sacrifice. The intent of the temple was no longer about, to, about giving priority to the reverence of God. The temple was a fig tree that had leaves, but did not bear fruit. Now it was just the business where people were taken advantage of. Kind of how you feel when you go to the theater and you head towards the concession stand. Gives you the temptation to want to just sneak things in your pocket, right? Why did the spiritual leaders of the temple allow this to go on? After Jesus cleanses the temple, he addresses the problem of injustice. For Jesus, the temple has lost its purpose. With coins lying all over the floor and feathers hovering in the air, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, My house will be called a house of prayer to all nations. Now the Greek word for house is oikos, which could be translated as dwelling. This is where God dwelled. The thought of designing the oikos of God came from David, King David. And as David became more popular, he had a palace built for himself. Being a king, he had a pretty nice setup. But this setup made him feel quite uneasy. This resulted in his statement, as he says in Samuel, I dwell in a house of cedar, 
but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This began the construction of what we call the Temple of Solomon. This grand temple was built to be the residence of God, the dwelling place of God. And this temple was to be the house of prayer, not only to the people of Israel, but to all nations. This was a public building where anyone, Jew or Gentile, could visit. The temple was to be a source of restoration and refreshing and peace. And the purpose of this temple was to bless those who were excluded, the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the outcasts, the broken, the hurting, the downtrodden. I mean, if you look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus fellowships and associates with the impure, the outcasts, the cripple, the outsider, like Gentiles. So the expectation that Jesus has for this temple is one that embodies this inclusive type of love. Instead, it became a place that separated Israel from all the nations. The temple had lost its purpose. Now, the priests had the money changers and the dove sellers set their tables and shops in a place called the court of the Gentiles. And this is the only area where Gentile converts who converted to Judaism could worship in the temple. So imagine this. You make your trek by foot all the way to the temple. And there's no place for you to worship. It would be extremely difficult for a non-Jewish person who traveled from a distant land to worship in an area that's crowded with merchants and vendors, especially with the stench of animal dumps because they were selling animals to sacrifice. So there was dung everywhere. And that smell just lingers in the air. Could you worship in an area like that? That would be pretty stink, right? So the decision to hold the merchants in this particular area made the worship of God an exclusive activity for the people of Israel. So do we restrict others' access to God? Do our actions as Christians stand as a barrier between the outsider and God? If we do, I sincerely apologize because that's not what being a Christian is all about. Now, Isaiah the prophet also makes it clear that how believers treat the outcasts and the Gentiles, um, he, he makes it clear that we should treat them with love and kindness. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple was not just about the extortion of the poor. His actions were for the benefit of the Gentile community as well. Within the temple, commerce, trade, and opportunity became the primary activity. The worship 
of God in the sanctuary became secondary to self-gain. So Jesus appears to be addressing these spiritual figures who had allowed the temple to be in the current condition that it's in. Jesus then ends his teaching with this statement, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here, Jesus is referring to Jeremiah 7-11 because he forgot to pick up musubis at 7-11. Oh, didn't work. The joke didn't work. Okay, don't use it again. Jeremiah is recognizing the corrupted position that Israel is in. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in the temple. Jesus upsets the priests by exposing how they benefited from the people's intent to genuinely worship God. They lost track of their purpose of serving God by being blinded by the benefits of serving God. The scripture continues to point out, this. We forget God when we forget the people that God cares about. Let me say this again. We forget God when we forget the people that God cares about. Over and over again, God speaks of the widow, the orphan, and the refugee. This is how you remember God. You bless those who need it most in the same way that God blessed you when you needed it most. So Jesus saw the buying and the selling of sacrificial animals was more about how the priest could benefit and set the priest under this declaration of judgment. This is why the chief priests and the scribes sought to kill Jesus. He exposed them. He pointed them out. He called them on their hypocrisy. Now, there are many parallels between the cursing of the fig tree and the temple. Each appears to be thriving, but neither bears fruit. Jesus comes seeking a form of usefulness in which he is utterly disappointed to find none. In both the fig tree and the temple, there's this lack of productivity according to its purpose for existence. The two stories can teach us a lot about re-evaluating our relationship with one another and with God. And I just want to say that, that we are not exempt into falling into the same temptations of the priests. In fact, 1 Peter says that you also, like living stones, being built in a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're all called to be priests in our, our realm of influence, in our sphere of influence. So is it possible that even as a Christian, we can be corrupted? I'll close with this final thought. You know, we use a lot of cliches. When I was living in the mainland, a lot of people would come up and say, oh, how are you doing? And I will just respond, oh, good. 
how are you doing? And it was like, good. And then we'd be on our way. It's just a nice greeting. You know, in Hawaii, we do have the same thing. We're like, oh, how's it, bro? And you're like, oh, how's it? Basically, it's asking, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, but um, we just respond with a how's it, with another how's it. See, it's a greeting that, that it's a greeting where no one answers or sometimes or even cares. So it's become a cliche, this how's it. See, the definition of, of a cliche is a trite stereotype expression, a sentence or phrase, usually expressing a popular or common thought or idea that has lost originality, ingenuity, and impact by its long overuse. So instead of using a cliche when you greet one another saying, how's it? Like, and they go, good. Like, you could stop and say, no, really, I really want to know how you doing. Like, was your week tough? And sometimes some things might come out, right? And you might read into it. But it's how a phrase turns from a cliche to something that is no longer a cliche, that's genuine, that's sincere. So the question I have for you this morning is this. And it's for us. Have we as Christians become cliches? Do people who are outside the faith feel that we lost our heart? Do we as Christians care more, more about being right? Do people know us for the things we oppose? For example, do they know us as a group of people who stand against abortion and traditional marriage rather than how we treat people with genuine care and with dignity and love. Do people see Christians as loving, compassionate people that represents the teaching and the actions of Christ? See, Jesus is coming again, and he's coming to see if we have more than leaves. He's looking for fruit. Do we genuinely care? Do we exemplify grace and love? Or has our Christian faith become quite merely a cliché? Let's pray.